today's message is one that we could all benefit from, I would like to begin by taking a look at John's Gospel, chapter 13, just as a reminder how important it was to our Lord that we deal with temptation. John chapter 13, uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. It's a familiar story. John chapter 13, verse 5 says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do... You do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So when we read this, we find that we have this story which is familiar to us, but I guess the key question is, what was Jesus trying to teach them? Why did he wash their feet? Any ideas, any thoughts of what he was trying to do? Yes. Okay, Justin says, give them a model to follow. But what does the model represent? What is the, what is the lesson here? What, what's the importance of this? Sorry? Spiritual cleansing, yeah. Are there other lessons from this? Humility. Yeah, humility and servanthood. Um, when we talk about spiritual cleansing, what kind of spiritual cleansing are we talking about here? Yes? Uh, Sanctification, Sanctification. yeah. Yeah, you're already saved, but you need daily cleansing. Why do we need daily cleansing? Because we sin. And so the, the... this story is difficult to understand until you get to verse 10, because it, 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 in the beginning, and I would say the overarching theme is servanthood, humble servanthood. Our Lord was a humble servant. He was trying to teach his disciples to be humble servants. But the specific example he used symbolized something, and it symbolized the need for daily cleansing. Otherwise, verse 10 doesn't make sense. We have Peter who says, no, you shall not wash my feet. And then the greatest reversal of all time, well, just not my feet, then my whole body and everything. And, and, and then the Lord says to him uh, in verse 10, he says, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. And he's talking there about salvation, and the one he's, who he knows is not saved is Judas Iscariot, and John gives us that insight. But then he talks about the need for that daily cleansing. You walk around in the filth of this world as a believer, 
you will sin. You will be stained. Uh, and so repentance is something that we do when we come to salvation and we are saved. And from God's perspective, positionally, we are completely cleansed. When he sees us, he sees us through Christ's righteousness. And we have no need of, of doing anything um, to try and earn our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. It's only by Christ's work. And he completely saves us. In fact, many times in Scripture, uh, it speaks about the fact that you have eternal life, something you have right now. You're living for eternity right now. You pay attention to the tenses in Scripture. It talks about, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, you look at the tenses of being raised with Christ. You have been raised. And so you're thinking about, what do you mean I have been raised? It's so sure. It's so confident that you will be with our Lord. And so when we think about this passage, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the need for daily cleansing. And um, in verse uh, 14, he says, If I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's a lot of confusion over what that means, and there's some uh, good theologians that have different uh, emphases on this. Everyone believes that servanthood is part of it, but it seems from the context that one of the best ways you can serve someone else is to help them humbly and lovingly point out where they are, where they have need of daily cleansing. That is in the sermon uh, in, in Matthew five through seven. We have the Sermon on the Mount. We have this this illustration of this teaching where Jesus teaches them to take the log out of their own eye and then help your brother take the speck out of his own eye, or to wash his feet, to help cleanse him, to, to help not only point it out, but do what you can do to help him overcome the temptation and sin that we all face daily. Every one of us struggles with daily temptation. If you can't think of a number of issues that you are facing today, that are temptations to you today, then I encourage you to listen to last week's message because last week's message ended with take heed lest you fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he does not fall. In other words, if you say, yeah, I really don't see any temptations or sin in my own life. I think I'm right. That's the warning that overconfidence causes us to be proudful or actually not aware of what we need to deal with in our lives. So I have no idea what your greatest temptation is, and there may be no one else besides you who knows what it is, but there are, should be plenty of them that you're facing each day. Charles Spurgeon said, the severest struggles of a true Christian are usually unknown to anyone but himself. Not in the family do we meet the most, suitable tempta- most subtle temptations, but in the closet. Not in the shop, so much as in the recesses of our own spirit do we wrestle with principalities and powers. So your main temptation or temptations may be very private, and you may have never shared them with anyone else, but recognizing that we are sinners living in a fallen world, a world that is influenced by Satan, um, that we need to be conscious of what's around us and very sensitive to that and be searching our hearts, Lord, What would you have me work on next? 
Where am I failing it? Show me. Send people into my life to help me see areas that need to be changed so that I might become more like Christ. It's a serious issue because if we're not sensitive to sin, then Hebrews 12 teaches us that like a loving father, our God will discipline us. He'll help point out our sin. So we have many ways that will help us, lead us to that sanctification, that being set apart. Um, We talk about the fact that we are sanctified from God's perspective, but there's another perspective, a progressive sanctification, where we are continuing to grow in grace, grow in God's word, in understanding and application of God's word. There's no greater weapon than the word of God. It's what Christ used in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted. And for the Christians in Corinth, we've seen many of their temptations. The one that he's mainly dealing with in um, verses, uh, chapters 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians and on into chapter 10 is that they had the, this struggle with eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Um, a relative might invite them over for dinner. They might find out, hey, this has been sacrificed to uh, an idol. Uh, many of the people who, were, um, who would worship in the pagan temples, which was also associated with sexual immorality and temple prostitutes. There was a huge temple to Aphrodite in Corinth. And so this was common in Corinth. And some who had come out of that, this would have been a real stumbling block. Those who were not in it might have thought, well, you know, when they take meat to the, to the priest for sacrifice, uh, the, meat, the priest gives them a third of the meat back. The priest might take some for himself, but he has so much meat that he takes in each day he probably will sell it at a cheaper rate to the market. And so there's a temptation for people to buy the the meat that is cheaper. If you were a merchant in the city, you might be tempted to be a part of a merchant's guild, which we know of from those times, which sometimes associated with the temple or in the temple. And so some would have said, hey, for my business, I got to be associated with these people, but I don't really believe it's just a rock. It's just an idol. It's just a piece of metal. It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm just doing it to be in the community Others would have had a problem with that. There were many festivals throughout the year. Some might have participated in it saying, well, this doesn't mean anything. It's like Halloween, right? They wouldn't have said that then. But, you know, you get the idea that others would have said, I'm horrified by the thought that you would actually identify with that. And so we had this conflict between how much Christian freedom do you have and how much can you give up and should you give up of your freedom for the sake not only of your brother, but in chapter 10, the focus is on you to help to keep you from falling. And these are the kinds of questions that he's asking. And what sins, they're listed specifically in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Verse sin, we have the sin of idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Play there is a euphemism for sexual activity. Um, goes back to the people of Israel in the Exodus. But the whole idea here is that idolatry, that is prizing anything or anyone else higher than they ought to be prized to where it competes with your affection for God, is sin. Could be something good, could be something bad, but idolatry is wrong. Verse 8 speaks about sexual immorality. Nor let, any, uh, let us, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Verse 9 speaks about the testing of sin, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. And it leads us to verse 10, which is complaining, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. All Old Testament references, Old Testament examples for us to help us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he 
fall, and almost as an alternative to falling. And before he gets into a section where he calls out to them in verse 14, flee from idolatry, he gives this verse of assurance, this promise, which is there to help us, to comfort us, which is good for us to slow down and look at. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, I want to take a look at three lessons about temptation that should encourage you to resist temptation. Three lessons about temptation that should encourage you to resist temptation um, when it comes your way. The first lesson is that no temptation is uncommon. No temptation is uncommon. He says that very clearly. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And it's important that we look at this word, word temptation because it is a word in the Greek that can be used neutrally, and it doesn't necessarily mean something bad or good. Today, when we say the word temptation, it has bad connotations. Um, Every language has words that are defined by context, and this this is no exception. There are some words that you can use. They might mean the the exact opposite thing. When we were in South Africa, I've used this example before, but um, the term ach shame, ach shame. It, it, you hear them use it in different contexts. Sometimes people will say, uh, they'll see a cute little baby, and they'll say, oh, shame. Oh, oh, what a shame. And they're shaming all over themselves, talking about a baby, how cute it is. And uh, the same person might see a horrific accident on the side of the road, and they're oh, shame. And the w- same word means that's horrific or that's beautiful. And it just depends on the context uh, in which you use it. In this case, the word... Uh, Prismos in the Greek can be used as test or temptation. And we find it used both ways in Scripture. Uh, a test or a trial, um, we find, uh, well, let's start with a temptation. A temptation would be a solicitation for or an encouragement to do evil. Satan is called a tempter uh, because he encourages others to do evil and he sets up and influences the world system of immorality to tempt people. Uh, I don't think that uh, Satan is to be blamed for your sin. We wouldn't say, well, the devil made me do it, because the devil is not omnipresent, nor is he omniscient, and so therefore um, you, you shouldn't say that uh, it necessarily was the devil. Uh, I myself am very capable of sinning on my own without the devil telling me to do it. And so uh, it just may give him a little bit too much credit and me a little too little credit. Um, but God never tempts. And James makes that clear. In James chapter 1, verse 13, James wrote, Let no one say when he's tempted, that's the same word that could be translated as tested or tempted. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. However... Um, in fact, James goes on in verse 14. This is a good example for us. He's in James, 14, James 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when is full grown, brings forth death. So when we have this temptation, it, the word in English has negative connotations, yet the original word can be can be um, translated in a neutral kind of way or even a good kind of way, like a test. 
While God does not tempt, he does allow testing. A test is designed to show God's faithfulness. A test is designed to show God's faithfulness. And it's designed to encourage believers in him. So sometimes you might have something that from God's perspective was sent to be a test for you, and it ends up being a temptation for you. This is probably a weak example, but I I heard a story about a a salesman who was bidding on a contract uh, for a a large building to be built. Uh, And so he goes in for the construction company. He's giving the bid for this huge building that's going to go up, and he meets with the guy who's in charge of the funding, and the guy has to leave for a moment. And uh, there on his desk was... um, was a big uh, uh, was a bid from his major competitor, and so he's able to see all the numbers on the bid except for the last one. The last number, the big number of what the project's going to cost, is covered up. There's a can of Coke that's sitting on top of it, and so the guy is is um, is in the room alone. He's waiting for the guy to come back, and he thinks if I could just see that big number, I can underbid it a little bit, and we'll get the job. And so he reaches across, and he lifts up the can, and the can had been hollowed out. It was full of BBs. And BBs went all over the desk and all over the, the floor. And uh, before the guy even came in, he just picked up his stuff and just left. He, he just knew that it was a test to see if he was trustworthy or not. Now, God doesn't test us to see if we're trustworthy or not. God tests us to inform us of our faith and where it's at and to encourage us. God tests us to prove to others that he is faithful and worth following and that there's an affection for him. And so um, we have these differences between the words test and temptation. Are there any questions about that? Is that clear enough? There are many passages that use this same word. In fact, even in 1 Corinthians... um, we find this word, um, chapter 10, um, verse 9, nor let us try the Lord. That can also be translated as test. It's the same root that's found in the word as temptation. Nor let us tempt the word. So we're not here to test the Lord as the Israelites did. Well, let's see if God really is going to do something. You know, that testing is, is an arrogant way of saying... Um, we can, we can get away with it. It's the person who sins and says, I don't care what the punishment is. It's going to be worth the sin. That's what the Israelites were guilty of when God sent serpents, fiery serpents, to attack them in the wilderness. And so it's when your mind is wandering and you're thinking about, boy, I'd like to get away with this if I th- if I can get away with it, even though I know it's wrong. And I I think I'm willing to accept the consequences because somehow I think it's worth doing regardless of the consequences. That is testing God. And the strong warning in that passage is um, back in chapter 10, verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. God's word says, do not put him to the test. It is never worth it. That's a key concept. Sin is never worth it. Just because you are not struck dead every time you sin 
it doesn't mean that God doesn't see it, doesn't care about it, and isn't going to bring repercussions for that sin. Sin is never worth it. So we see that um, really both sides of the coin in here, um, that there's no test. You could even read the verse this way, 1 Corinthians 13. No test has overtaken you, but such as a common man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but with the testing will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. The reason why the translators have chosen the word temptation is because this is a warning, and the warning is against those who uh, have failed, and it seems to have more of a negative um, uh, connotation there, so they use the word temptation. But um, we see that uh, nobody could say, well, and, and there's a beautiful part of this promise in this first section when we're talking about common. There's a, there's a lot of encouragement there because someone else has gone through the same thing you're struggling with. Other believers have gone through it, and they have had victory over it. Because Romans 6 tells us that there is no, that sin shall not have dominion over you. And so as a believer, sometimes we believe this lie that, man, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in the sin. I cannot overcome it. It is a habitual sin. And, and, so, and, yet, and yet the fact that this is not unique, this is not your kryptonite. There is no kryptonite for, for believers. There's not, this isn't your one weakness that you can never get over. You can get over it. That's the promise. Not only that, this is not unique just to you. This is common, and others have had victory over it, and you could have victory over it, and that's a comfort. That's a comfort. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Even Jesus Christ was tempted in all things as we are, Hebrews 4.15 says. And in Hebrews 2.18, because he knows temptation and yet never sinned, He's able to help us. Hebrews 2.18 says, For since he himself was tempted in all that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So if you struggle with a particular sin and you think, I cannot escape this sin, be encouraged. Because God's word says that you can. Not only that, God's word says that others have struggled with the same sin and yours is not any different Although it may have its own characteristics, there are others who have had victory over it. And one of the first steps that will help you is to believe that and to understand that. Because if you're sitting there saying, I can never overcome this, you're ignoring the fact that in God's word, it clearly says that sin shall not have dominion over you. And you're resolved and settled in and just comforted back, well, I'm just going to have to live with this till I die. And you do not understanding that there is victory, that there is no habitual sin that has its grip on you. If you are in Christ, if you've submitted your life to Christ and he is your Lord and you have repented of your sin and given your life to him as Lord and master, he has not only paid for your sin in full, but he has made it possible for you to overcome any habitual sin. It doesn't mean that you will be sin-free the rest of your life. It is a constant journey. But sanctification itself means that you are gradually, 
sometimes three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes four steps forward, one step back, but you are growing and becoming more and more like Christ. And he uses circumstances, and he uses trials, and he uses uh, his word. He uses many means. He uses his grace. Uh, grace, Titus 2, 11. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. Grace, the fact that you're blown away by the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. Well, we've spent a lot of time on that first one, that it is no temptation is uncommon. But let's take a look at the second section of this verse. No temptation is unbearable. No temptation is unbearable. It says, and God is faithful. I just love that. I love that. That is the the uh, a main clause here for everything that follows it. God is faithful. Isn't that wonderful? Just think about this. The God of all creation, the God of the universe, is faithful in what? Who will not allow you. God cares about you as individuals. and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So no temptation is unbearable. When Paul teaches this, um, it reveals that really there are different levels of temptation. There may be some that, um, you know, you have not experienced, and you might say, boy, man, I don't know what I would do there. I I might have really crashed and burned, and you might have, but it's really irrelevant because you didn't experience that temptation. There's a principle in Scripture. It's found in Luke chapter 16, and... um, It has to do with money there, but the principle really is that little things are important to God. In in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, it talks about being faithful with the little things. But uh, also with temptations, one of the keys is is to guard yourself so carefully that not to think, well, this is just a little sin. It doesn't matter. It's not like it's pornography. I'm just looking at a, a catalog or... I'm in the car and I'm driving and there's a billboard and it's not the first look, it's the second look. My car has these standard issue devices in the car that help with that. They're billboard blockers. You put them down and it keeps you from taking that second look any higher. It's really convenient. You can turn them to the side, you can turn them forward. It's really, 1924 is when they invented those. Before billboards, as amazing. I mean, just fascinating. Um, But there are... Uh, certainly temptations. And so a mature believer may be able to overcome a higher level of temptation. Um, and a, a, a immature believer may not be able to overcome that, but God's not going to send you any temptation that you cannot overcome, which is another sweet promise. You know, I mean, if you think about these, these different levels um, you might say, well, man, I, uh, I took a, look at a, sec- a second look at a billboard. That was a really, that was a level one or a level two. That's, that's pathetic. I can do better than that. I mean, how could I have, you know, really, I'm not going to allow that to happen again. Lord, please help me. And this is, this, is a, uh, this is something that involves prayer. This is something that involves um, making a covenant before God, promising God, even in the little things. It was Job 31, verse 1, where he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? So, I mean, this is a type of thing where Job takes a look at a young woman, and he's like, Lord, please forgive me. I, I, just, I just broke the covenant I made with my eyes. 
So being very intentional as you live about saying, I am not going to do this. And in the morning as you're praying, Lord, this is an issue that I struggle with. I am not going to do this today. Please help me to avoid this. Please help me. I need your strength to get through this test if it comes upon me today. So you might have a a level one or a level two. There might be a level three or four, you know, where... uh, you have, you're at work, and, and uh, a coworker shows you a little extra attention, and you may think, wow. And you're tempted to think, hmm, I wonder if things were different. Where could this lead? And what, what uh, boy, it's nice to be appreciated. And, and, you know, and your mind starts to wander, and you need to stop that temptation. And that, that would be a little bit more of a temptation for most people than just seeing something from some stranger or something like that. So, so you could have a temptation that would be level three or four. You might have a level temptation that's an eight or nine where, where uh, you know, a coworker or someone you know uh, that you've already allowed yourself to get too close to as a married person, and they might say to you something like, you know, uh, hey, I really have feelings for you. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, this is way past. I got to skip down to verse 14. Flee, you know, <laughs> just... You may just have to flee, you know, but, but keeping a perspective that it's really, it's really sweet, that God is faithful, he's not going to allow you to be suffered or not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He promises to reduce the level of temptation that you might experience to a level that is always below your threshold. He never allows you uh, if you can only handle 110 volts to be plugged into a 220-volt outlet. He knows you, and he's faithful. He is a faithful God. So when we think about this God who's faithful and involved in your life daily, making sure that no temptation comes upon you that's at a higher level than you can handle This is God's response to us when we pray, do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Do not lead me into a test that I cannot handle is what we're saying here. May this be one that brings glory to your faithfulness. So no temptation is uncommon. No temptation is unbearable. A third lesson we learn from 1 Corinthians in this uh, verse 13, 10, 13, no temptation is unescapable. No temptation is unescapable. It says at the end of verse 13, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So not only can you bear temptation, but you can escape it. What are some of the ways you can escape temptation? What are some of the ways that you might Escape temptation. could be a small temptation. could be a large one. What are some of the things that you have done in the past or that you can do? Don't put yourself in a situation? Yeah, sure. So that's a covenant that you can make with, you, with yourself. Hey, I am not going near that. I am going to... Have you seen this Life 360? Isn't that kind of cool where you can track other people? You know? I've got it on my phone. I've got my kids. I track them. I'm total big brother. I'm like seeing where they're going. Hey, I... You were going a little fast today. Oh, you're riding with me? No, um, so, um, but I, 
uh, you can put zones around thing and it sends you a text if you're in the wrong zone. So like I'm thinking, hey, my daughter's you know dating a guy maybe someday, and uh, he lives here. I'll just put a zone around it. You know, I'll get a text, <laughs> warning, warning. I mean. No, I, I, I'm not recommending that. But I'm saying, if you've got to do that to yourself, you know, get Life 360 for yourself, you get a text, oh, what's this? You're in the wrong place. Make a covenant with yourself. Get accountability. What are some other ways? Memorize scripture. memorize scripture. This verse is a verse you should memorize. If you haven't memorized this verse, do it. Teach it to your children. Memorized it when I was a kid in the King James for whatever reason. But there is, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape so that ye may be able to bear it. It needs to be that quick. No, it doesn't need to be that quick, but it needs to be that fresh on your mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you need to know this. Not, oh, I know there's a verse about temptation. I think it's in Corinthians. What's interesting about this verse, as we look at the grammar, is that it doesn't talk to us about many ways of escape. Notice the grammar, the definite article, the way of escape. Notice that the noun way is a singular noun, not the ways of escape. But he's speaking about a specific, particular way of escape. What is the way of... There is one way of escape in temptation. What is the one way? Follow Christ, yeah, but that's, there, there's a specific way. That's general. Wait is not the way. It's in our text. Endure it so that you may be able to endure it. God has designed the way of escape as going through it. You can pray, take it away from me. But the way of escape, you know, we get this picture of the way of escape, and we picture a movie scene where the walls are closing in, and you're like, how are we going to get out of here? And you're like, oh, I found the secret button. That's not what the Bible teaches about the way of escape. It's right here for us. It's endure it. Go through it. Trust God in this. Enduring temptation and escaping temptation are closely related if you are going to escape, you must endure it. Some of the Corinthians may have thought, well, I can handle, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols. There's no real temptation for me. Well, what about others who see you? And that was Paul's concern in chapter 8, right? Um, the Bible teaches that we should avoid temptation whenever possible. Proverbs 4, verse 14, do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. I think that one of the reasons why we are enticed by the world as well, is that our understanding of what heaven will be like is cloudy. 
Because if you really understood how great our future is, it would pull you away from so many of just the empty things that this world has to offer. So I want to take, we've got 10 minutes left. I've got some passages, some keys, but I wanted to stop here, and we could end here, but I just want want to find out any questions. What questions are coming in your mind about this verse? It's not hard for us to understand. Temptation is not common. I mean, there's no temptation that is uncommon. There's no temptation that is unbearable. There's no temptation that is unescapable. So, yeah. Yeah, so the question has to do with how does uh, a temptation um, uh, inform us of our faith? And James does a really good job with that because, and you're familiar with with James as well, with um, James chapter 1, where it says, um, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, whenever you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There we have that idea of endurance, the way out, right? Um, And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. It goes on, this whole chapter uses these words, um, testing, trying, temptation, same word used in different contexts. But when we go through a trial or a temptation or a testing, and we come out victorious, it strengthens your faith because James is all about faith. Genuine faith is accompanied by works. Good works will not save you, but a works-less faith is a dead faith. And so seeing God working in your life, helping you to, to overcome sin, strengthens your faith gives you that endurance that you need. It is to your benefit. Now, we're not going out looking for temptation just so we can be strengthened. Take heed lest you fall. But we are definitely going to uh, be, be um, doing it because of the way it benefits us. It's a motivation, but also it glorifies God because somebody looks and says, man, if I were going through what you're going through, I'd be miserable. And you seem like joyful. Yeah, it's pure joy. Because the fact that God gets me through this reminds me that he cares for me. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes? So I've heard people say that um, when it says that the, God always lets the temptation down so you can bear, people say, well, yeah, I mean, like, I have the Holy Spirit, so Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit can do whatever. So, yeah, I mean, God is all-powerful, but you've got to realize this, that, that um, 
So I guess the question, if I can rephrase it just to make sure it's clear, is that since we have his spirit in us, are, are we able to overcome any sin? Uh, or is it that maturity determines what level of sin we might be able to overcome? Is that the question? So uh, I would say both. We can overcome any sin, but God is faithful, and he's not going to take you on the pinnacle of the temple and tell you he's going to let you be the ruler of the whole world the day after you become a believer. Right? Other questions? Yes. Yeah, so it's a good question, and we can pick that up next week as well. But the next verse is flee from immorality, right? It says in verse 14, I'm not in the right chapter now, but uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so is that different than, um, than enduring it? Nah, no, because when I say enduring it, it doesn't mean to stay there as long as possible. Okay, this is... Interesting you said that. That's a level five for me. Can I withstand a level six? You know? No. Uh, when you flee from it, it's you've gotten through it because you recognize its danger. I think the biggest danger that stands out in this passage is when you don't recognize it's a danger or when you think you're overconfident. The first 12 verses really come down hard on people's confidence. There's one last passage I'll take you to in closing, and that is um, Colossians 3, verses 2 through 5. I think this is a key passage when it comes to um, enduring and overcoming temptation. And and the, the principle here is you need to live like a dead man. Part of the problem when we fall to temptation is we're thinking about ourselves and our own lives and our own rights and everything. If we've seen over and over again, when Paul says, asks the, is asked the question, how much freedom do we have to do this? He says, no, 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 that's not the question. The question is, how much of your freedom can you give up to stay away from the edge? That should be our struggle. That's where Paul always was. I want to be as far away from temptation as possible. We've seen that again and again and again, chapters 8, 9, and 10. But Colossians 2, 3, uh, Colossians 3 verses 2 through 5, really sums this up. It says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And you think, wait a minute, when did I die? I've heard of being born again, but when did I die? You died when you repented of your sins and gave your life to Christ. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Yet Christ lives in me. And so we have this idea of, of uh, uh, I, I want to become less and less. And, you know, uh, I, when I come to this verse, I think of the tree that used to be right in front of our house in Malawi. It's called the Kacheri tree. It's a famous tree in Central Africa. The Kacheri tree cannot be planted. You cannot plant a Kacheri tree. The only way it grows is that a bird has to eat the seed of a Kacheri tree. Then the bird has to excrete that on another tree. Don't take the illustration too, too graphically. But uh, then, then that seed takes root on that tree and t- starts to grow. And eventually, that kacheri tree grows all around the original tree. So much so 
that you can never tell what the original tree was. The roots and everything go down, overcome it. Uh, Unless you were to cut it open, you'd never be able to tell what was the original tree inside that. I love that tree. Sometimes you can see a branch of the original sticking out. Then you could identify that branch is different than everything else. I love it because I think as, as I grow, I want Christ to completely cover me. I don't want anybody to see me. I want them to see Christ. And any time I'm sticking my branch out there, you know, my arm or my, you know, so that people can see me. Look, it's me. It's me. I'm here. Read the verse again. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Flee from idolatry. It's just the same thing just comes back to us. Flee from idolatry. All those things, um, earthly body, uh, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, how do we escape those? How do we have victory over those things? It's to be identified with Christ. It's having, it's saying, I don't want to be seen in this at all. I want God is faithful to be my mantra. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this challenging passage. Thank you for this verse. Thank you for the privilege we have. Again, not a difficult outline, not difficult principles to understand, yet we tend to forget them. So uh, my prayer is that each one of us Lord, help me to apply this in my life. Help me, even this night, before I go to bed, to examine my own heart, see which temptations I'm struggling with, see where I might be tempted tomorrow, and call upon your name to pray for you to help me, not only to get through it, but to remember how to get through it. And so we commit this to you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.